Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Back to the Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton, who have just enjoyed a six-week hiatus. I say enjoyed, perhaps I mean slept, walked through. Slept, walked, sleep, walked. Sleep, walked through. It's a good start. <laughs> Call off the search. Lock up your sons. The waiting game is over. We are back. And up your sons. And as ITV would say, we are bigger and bolder than ever. Not really, we're exactly the same. If anything, I think we're a bit slower than ever. <laughs> I think we're definitely a bit slower we're than ever. We're more mediocre, slower, average, and less pleasing than ever, but we'll get there. Bear with us. So what was having a baby, what, what was that like? <laughs> God, Dolly, that's like me saying to you, what's it like writing a book? You'd be like, actually, probably similar emotions. <laughs> but tell me what it was like, as if we've never spoken about this before. Tell the listeners what having a baby is like. <clears throat> Go on, treat us. The only way I can explain the physical act of having a baby is a split sofa. I am a split sofa. I appreciate you saying that. I think that's that's one of the first things you said to me when I was messaging you. I have to tell the listeners as well about how I found out that you'd given birth. Pandora has this camel coat that she wore throughout her mat leave that she said when mat leave was over, she just wouldn't be able to look at it anymore. And I thought it was a rather nice coat. So I kept saying to you, could I please have the coat when you've had the baby? And then I got a message one morning just saying, doll, guess what? You can have my coat. (laughs) I was like, will she get it? And I was like, if she doesn't, we're really in trouble. Um, No, I can't really summarise what having a baby is like in 10 words of this podcast. What I will say is that midwives do God's work um, Mm. and that it is a time for all the feelings. The hormones and emotions are extraordinary. Birth is quite literally indescribable. um, So I won't try. My daughter arrived in a serious hurry. My labour was only two and a half hours, which was quite intense. But um, she's amazing, obviously. It's been an amazing, but very quick. Can't quite believe we're back here. Six-week leave. She is almost five weeks. I think people think that maternity leave is quite cushy. People keep emailing me a mere month after having had her, asking if I'm enjoying my break. And it's actually the most exhausting job I've ever done. My husband freely admits that he gets the sweet deal. Well, when you say that, when I arrived, Pandora, she came to the door and she had a cocktail with a mini umbrella in. (laughs) And a sombrero. And she said, how's it going, Chica? <laughs> I am literally a human cow. Breastfeeding is a 24-7 job, which I don't think people realise. That is, if you're not feeding, you're expressing. And if you're not expressing, you're burping. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I am... It's constant. I'm really efficient. And it can be quite hard if you're on your own to get dressed I have by to lunchtime. S- I have to say, you'd, I obviously know how time-consuming and stressful it is. But you do seem very serene. And every time a friend of mine has said, how is Pandora finding it? I do think you're 
really you seem very very happy it seems like you've kind of taken to it really well i i i really i really freaking enjoy her and i think she is um i think she's a great baby i'm not there you know there have been lots of various setbacks which i'm not gonna air here you know it's not easy but i think mentally i've been in a really good place and she um She's a joy. I've actually had some childcare starting this week because I am easing back into work, which quite frankly does feel too soon. But I honestly kept thinking that I had left her on the counter. I'd be I'd be typing up notes for this podcast mm. and I'd be like, fuck, where have I put the baby? And then I'd be like, oh my God, someone else has got her. Because I have not put her down in four and a half weeks. She will only sleep in my arms. Yeah. So at night, I am just cemented to my tiny dictator. So needy, aren't they? You, I, I mean, today was the first day, literally, that I've been able to take a crap with two hands. Oh my God, that sounds like... I'm not saying I have like crapped into two hands, Look, but you do I've you. been using wet wipes because I've only had one hand and it makes the whole process quicker and less painful. Because yeah, your whole pelvic floor region is um, really fun. I'm I don't want to cut any of that out. <laughs> Can we please tell my favourite part of your birth story? What's my favourite part of... It- to do with a hot off the press interview. Oh my god, this this was just farcical. So, you know what? Being freelance and having a baby is not necessarily easy. I tried to take a month off email. I still found people chasing me, even though they got my maternity out of office. Um, you don't, you know, have that six months or even a year off that you would get in a regular job. I mean, here we are, and she's not even five weeks old. But there was one publication in particular that really hounded me, and that was when I was still on the labour ward, I got a call from Your Cat magazine, who I'd done an interview with about Indy, my cat, purely for my husband's entertainment. Um, And they were ringing and asking for a picture, and my husband picked up and said, "Um, you know, this isn't really a great time. My my wife's literally just delivered a baby. I'm afraid we don't have a picture of Indy, our cat. It's honest right now. And um, she said, well, it's really very urgent. I then relayed this to Dolly, who said that they had also been chasing her for a picture. On both Indy. channels, on the high-low email, they were messaging me on Google. They said, this is absolutely urgent. Even when they knew I was on maternity leave. They said, we can- apparently Pandora's giving birth. We cannot get hold of her and we immediately need a high-res photograph of her cat. <laughs> Anyways, that's my favourite part of Pandora's birth story. Can you please give me one fact about babies that I may not know? I think there's a shitload of facts that give, you're in Give for. me the weirdest but one. No, here's, here's one that I found really fun, because I've had to learn a lot about babies. You can have friends with babies, and I have a lot of friends with babies, but until you have a baby, you you know, you don't learn all the skills. Jesus, it's like a crash course. But you also don't learn some fun stuff. The thing that I really enjoy is that babies are born with three reflexes. One is the sucking reflex. So as soon as they're born, which is pretty amazing, they're put on your chest and they literally crawl towards your boob. It's pretty cool. So that's that the sucking cool. reflex. The other one is the walking reflex. So even when they are tiny, if you hold them on the floor, their little feet will go Aww. forward. And the third My is My friend's the... Daxon does that when you <laughs> And the third is the morrow reflex, which is that they shoot their arms up like that. So they oh, yeah. sleep with their yeah. arms up. And as soon as they finish feeding, I know when Zadie has finished feeding because she flings herself off with her arms up. Like, why why is it for digestion? I've got no idea what propels the morrow reflex. It must have, it must have a, you know, a, a, a use. Because that's all that babies are born with, is those three reflexes. Yeah. Noth- literally nothing else. Everything else is learned. learned. My friend said that his baby did that when she would he would wake her up with the arms going up. Yeah. And he said it was like she was a, a really flamboyant conductor. 
doing this like great whoosh with her arms. Oh, he does hilarious impressions of her. I have to say that it's fucking terrifying because she's been sleeping in my arms and trust me, that's a habit we're going to kick. But um, when she in the middle of the night suddenly goes <laughs> and the arms go up <laughs> into my face, these tiny arms, they are strong newborn babies. Anyway, <clears throat> enough baby chat. Even in my least cognizant state, I've actually really missed the high-low. Can you believe? Have you missed the high-low at all? I have missed the high-low. I've keenly felt its absence when there's something I've wanted to talk about. And I've wanted to talk about it for just too, just a little too long than anyone will entertain me on WhatsApp. <laughs> so I felt it during Grenfell's Three Billboards, activism, oh, yeah. looted yeah. direct from the movies. I felt it when Frances McDormand spoke of the inclusion rider at the Oscars. I felt it when Jennifer Lawrence had that Versace dress backlash. And I felt it during Cambridge Analytica. I had to listen to a New Yorker podcast explaining exactly what Cambridge Analytica was four times whilst trundling around with my pushchair. But we got there in the end. I don't think that's baby brain because I read a piece about Cambridge Analytica and it was like, you know, when you're reading an A-level text and you start the sentence, you're like, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm reading this really important thing. And then halfway through, you realise that you've just been thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. And you start again. Yeah, I did that with that piece. I found it really hard to digest. I don't know why. I... It's it's just quite a weighty. There's lots of strands to it. There's lots of strands, but also it's um, it's about a very specific and small and not small, very very significant, but seemingly an overspend. So it was like packaged as more of a huge sensationalist story. But when you actually read what it is, it's, it's a very like granular it, detail that makes a very big difference. And also, I think the key thing was that using data for you know political. Um, uh, campaigns yeah. is is nothing new. Obama did it as well. The difference yeah. was how it was dressed up, and this was all just rather sneaky and revolting. And obviously, it had, you know, the Mercer family and 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 various, just quite odious individuals mm. behind mm. it. Mm. The actual concept of it was not that weird. Has there been anything that's made you really miss the high low in our six week break? Plenty, but I'll tell you something that I don't think I've spoken to you about yet. Have we talked about me going to the Baftas? No, I don't think so. I Google very kindly. In, in my head, it's the NTAs and your pink feathers. <laughs> no. Google very kindly invited me to the BAFTAs and I went with my friend and my writing partner, Lauren. And it was a really fun night. Um, and I just fell in love like the rest of the world with Frances McDormand in a, in a, in a really kind of intense way. She just... She's a force it's to be reckoned moment. with. Yeah, she's a force. She's the kind of feminist I want to be. She puts her money where her mouth is, I think. But I also think it should be noted that she is in her 50s. You know, mm. this is not... Don't... For everyone thinking like, God, why aren't I like that? She's lived a life. Mm. She's come to this point now. It's actually great that it's happening to her mm. in her 50s because I think it says a lot for how powerful older women mm. can be. Women mm. that weren't known when they were younger. But but there's well it's like hope there's hope for me yet but my favorite observation about the BAFTAs is that I thought that it would be like the Oscars and I thought it would be like people on round tables and very swanky and very smooth because it's sort of like the most glamorous British event you can go to is what I think yeah, like I British, like BAFTAs. British it's literally it just makes you realize the difference between English and American culture and the disparity between it because even at the most ritzy most important event of its kind in the film industry, it still felt like a village fate. <laughs> like, at the end, there was this incredible moment that Lauren and I watched where this man just came onto the stage. He was like, right, before we let everyone out of the building, he was saying this to the winners. Can we just get everyone up on stage because we want to get a nice picture of you with your prize? And we were I like, think that is, really, that is like, not what the Richard like Fashion Awards Gary say. Oldman being like, 
they're shuffled onto the stage. <laughs> so Amazing. yeah, no, that was a great experience. So that's that's that made you miss the high low. That made me miss the high low. That <laughs> anecdote. Um, so what else, what stuff have you been reading and listening to? If you've had any moments in between feeding the dictator, <laughs> so the tiny dictator. Um, I'm not going to list everything I enjoyed in our six weeks off, mainly because I can't remember. And I also devoured a lot of chick lit, um, quote unquote, because I found it very, I actually do find chick lit very comforting during emotional and physical exhaustion. As soon as I went into labour, I literally put down Michael Wolff's Far and Fury, the bestseller about Trump, went onto the bedside table where it has remained ever since. <laughs> I might try and pick it up at the six week mark. But a very quick checklist of things I've enjoyed. Obviously a shitload of box sets um, because there's so much time being a boob banquet. This is us on Amazon Prime. You'd love this, doll. It follows the lives of triplets born in the 70s and the parents are played by Mandy Moore and Milo Ventimiglia. I've watched it all start Have to you? finish. Yeah. Yeah, I've written a piece um, about This Is Us this week, actually. For who? Where can I read it? For style. No, it won't be out until next week. It's about This Is Us. Isn't it good? Mandy Moore's Uh, good. Oh, no. Well, what what I've said in the piece is... Why have you written a piece about it? Because when I first watched that first episode of This Is Us, I was really appalled by it. And I thought it was mawkish and predictable and characterised badly and cheesy. I really hated it. You can see my face. I look very... I I look cross. (laughs) And yet, something drew me in. And I... I became completely and utterly obsessed and every single episode since about episode three of series one without fail I have cried every single episode so I think it's interesting that a lot of British people I know have reacted in this way I watched her going into labour when I was in labour did you that was powerful yeah I can imagine I spoke to Natasha Lunn who's a massive massive fan who's uh, an editor at Red, and I said, why do you think it is so popular? Because on paper, it it is so cheesy and it is so predictable. And she said, I think it's permission to be sentimental. But I think it became for me every week when I would watch it on torrent websites, um, it became for me like a kind of therapeutic exercise because I just sit bawling my eyes out. I also have been watching, and as I said, this is a very quick checklist because I've been watching a lot, Unreal, which is a fiction, a fictionalized Dolly's nodding furiously, a fictionalized series about a reality show like The Bachelor, and it's so dark and, I mean, it's a really dark take on structured reality, which Dolly knows more about than me. It is hammed up though, isn't it? Um. Yes. Yeah. I've I mean, only watched one episode. Oh. Okay. Watch more, and then you'll see why I'm like. Please tell me it's hammed up. It's oh like, yeah. No. It's it like will death. Be. Yeah, no, it will be hammed up. But apparently there are... There's three series. Apparently there are... All my friends that I've worked on those shows with said that the language that they use in it and that that it's uncanny. It's obviously not the events. No one dies when you're making TOWIE. Um, <laughs> but apparently there, there are some very similar parallels yeah yeah it's amazing where this you know like the bitch kind of queen producer is like we're selling romance people you know and they're actually selling like the most depressing um kind of romantic partnership ever i also really enjoyed on um you can watch on bbc iplayer save me the six-parter that lenny james wrote and starred in that's had a lot of coverage so lenny james is a writer and actor I think he's in his early 50s um british and he had lo- he last wrote a drama for the bbc about 20 years ago um and he was so scarred by it it took him ages to be able to write save me which is a brilliant portrayal of um 
kind of diverse working class London, uh, Lenny's estranged daughter goes missing. Um, and he had written something in the 90s and it had been deemed specialist by the BBC because of how many black protagonists there were. Mm. Uh, and they'd given him the midnight on a Wednesday slot oh for his drama. Um, and obviously we're now in different times and I think the BBC has uh, really supported him now. But a lot of people were like, oh my God, this... Because it is it's really brilliant. I should think he'll probably receive a BAFTA or something like that. But I think a lot of people were saying, God, I can't believe it's taken 20 years for him to feel like he could make Save mm. Me. Anyways, that's brilliant. Watch that on iPlayer. I've also been watching Billions. If you like Damien Lewis, it's a very good romp. Scandal, quite enjoyable. Famous in Love. If you liked Riverdale, that's for you. That's on Amazon Prime. And Sex, Drugs and Murder on BBC iPlayer, which is brilliant. It's about the area in Leeds called Holbeck where they legalise prostitution. It is absolutely devastating and amazing and you should all watch it so you realise how privileged we are not to be born into a life of prostitution mm -hmm. and I think it makes the idea of sex work being empowering a very complicated idea because every single one of these women was born into either an abusive home mm -hmm. or their mother was a prostitute every single one of them has children who have been taken away and they are all tops 30 and I think watch watch this because I think it's important that um, I think it's important that we feel conflicted about I, I ideas agree. and and that we te we tell both sides of those stories because it does sometimes feel like it's been washed with this new feminist narrative. Yeah, and you watch that and you realize the same old problems persist uh, of power and the dynamics and the, and the position that some women find. And that's not in. to shame, obviously, but I, as Pandora said, I do think it's complicated and, and it's important to have a full understanding of the whole picture. Definitely. Dolly gave me The New Yorker for a subscription for my birthday, and I really enjoyed a piece on a girl called Hannah Up, who basically enters fugue states where she just walks out of her life with no knowledge and comes back into it, again, not realising where she's been for the last few months. Very sadly, Hannah is actually currently missing in one of these fugue states. So a fugue state, if you're watching Marcella, um, on telly at the moment you'll probably know what one is it's a disassociative state where you lose any kind of um, knowledge of who you are and where you are and then you come back and you don't know where you've been for that time and it's a just a brilliant New Yorker sort of 10 page essay mm. about this girl and about her parents they're quite hippie but about her parents determination to allow her not to let the fugue state define her so they let her move abroad to this Caribbean island mm. where sadly another fugue state enveloped her and she's yet to be found on the island of St Thomas that's brilliant God, that sounds fascinating it's really good I'm sure it's online so I'll send it to you Dolly and if it is I'll put it in the show notes and a brilliant piece of journalism that's been doing the rounds recently is Will Ferrell interview Viewing Joaquin Phoenix for Interview Magazine. Have you no. come across this? It's really funny. So I'm just going to read out a bit. Will Ferrell, when you worked with M. Night Shyamalan, did you ever just once call him M. Night Shyamalan Ding Dong? Phoenix, no. Ferrell, okay. How would he have reacted if you were like, hey, M. Night Shyamalan Ding Dong, can I ask you about this one camera shot? Phoenix, having been teased most of my childhood about my own name, Feral, you're sensitive to that area. I get that. It's a really funny interview. There's a bit where Joaquin Phoenix thinks that Will Ferrell is about to compliment him. And Will Ferrell's like, as I was saying, you little bitch. And goes on to tell like this really, this really rude story. But is it in earnest? 
Um, it's, it's not like a, a satirical interview. It's not a satirical interview. And actually, Joaquin Phoenix is—he sounds quite—he um, sounds quite dry in that bit about his name. He's—they're actually—they come across really well. It's, okay. It's really funny. They both feel similar. Uh, feel similarly about kind of things. And lastly, recently, whilst I've been endlessly pushing the pushchair around the park in the rain, I enjoyed an episode of Get It Off Your Breasts, which is a podcast by Liana Bird and Emma Gannon. They did an episode with Grace Campbell, who is a 23-year-old activist, who I have latterly realised is Alistair Campbell's daughter. Who I did a reading of the vagina monologues with last she month. Sounded, she sounded awesome. She's and brilliant. She's she brilliant. was talking all about pubes. Now, it's not anything new, the debate they were talking about, you know, the idea of body hair. Do you remove body hair because of... Um, patriarchal conditioning. Because, because of patriarchal conditioning. Are you allowed to actually like your body without it? Um, it's just a really interesting, great deep dive. It's all the things that you and I think about it, Dolly, and yeah. a bit more, and just general kind of chat about it. Also, I'm obsessed with words for pubes, discussions about pubes. I just quite, I just quite like pubes, so... Um, you dolly how are your pubes no please don't i'm not going to go into that um i will tell you a very brief roundup of some of the best things that i've been consuming i read a proof copy of promising young women by caroline o'donoghue who is an irish journalist in her late 20s you might know her work from the pool she actually she writes some of my favorite pieces of journalism for the pool i've always adored her writing i've always found her very very funny and i was really excited about her book and I wasn't disappointed. It's so brilliant. I actually, I'll bring the proof for you to read next week, Please Pandora, because I think you'll really, really love it. It's about a, it's a novel. It's about a twenty-something girl who works kind of low down in an advertising agency, and she moonlights as an online agony aunt. Caroline has a really good understanding of um, cultural touchstones. Uh, zeitgeist references, millennial references, the the second world online, and she just kind of fills that out in a way that's really um, recognisable and snappy and convincing. But she goes into something much deeper and much darker. It's about gender dynamics in an office. It couldn't really be more timely, actually, at the moment. Um, but it's also about a very specific type of older man who she gets in a relationship with the character and you watch the relationship unfold. It's compelling and illuminating. I actually saw, I think a lot of women will see a relationship from their past life in that dynamic and, and it's kind of disturbing but affirming as well and kind of soothing. So yeah, I really, really highly recommend that and that's out on June the 7th. I also read Brit-ish, which is a book by F. Hirsch. Oh, I want to read that. It's really good. It's part memoir, part investigation into Britishness and blackness. And it's just a really illuminating, very educational book about identity and why we're a nation. It's sort of in denial of who we are and, and how we created our country. What was she like on Love Stories? Amazing. I need yeah, to she was amazing. listen to that episode. She's a really intelligent, really open-minded curious person and I learned so much from her book it's like Rennie's book why I'm no longer talking to white people about Rennie race Lodge, who's a previous guest and Afua has guested on Dolly's 
podcast love stories which for the for the big dolly devotees you'll be listening to you'll have been listening to that whilst the high low was on a break dolly just segued from one audio <laughs> into another um and we can link that in the show notes as well but yeah she i really recommend reading the book i think it was because the, the criticism that she's had which i think is so short-sighted she's had very little criticism but when she has well, had, the times did eviscerate yeah it. that that criticism says that this is someone who wants to divide Britain, which she doesn't. The way I understand her and her work is she's someone who's really passionate about this country, which is her home. And it's about reconciliation. And for that reconciliation and moving into a new world, understanding how we got here and understanding the truths of our prejudice, of which there are many. It's not nice to read about it. I get it. It's uncomfortable, but we've got to read about it. We've got to understand our own prejudice and we've got to understand our historic wrongdoings as well as a nation. So I really recommend that. Have you been watching anything good? I've been watching Damned on Channel 4, which is Joe Brand's comedy. Okay. It's so good. Weirdly, I started watching it thinking I was watching Series 1, and I was actually coming in on Series 2. I've since gone back to Series 1, and I actually think the second series is funnier. It's about social work and social workers, and I don't know how she manages to do this. Well, I do it's because she's so intelligent. She used to be a... Psychiatric nurse, yeah, exactly. And and she says that that is at the root of a lot of her, yeah, of who she is, yeah. And you can tell that she has a depth of experience of understanding kind of human fallibility and um, the people that kind of fall through the cracks. And and she manages to tell these stories without judgment at all. But it's really dark stuff, and you feel nervous when you first start watching these these episode by episode stories unfold which are about neglect or racism or you know really serious stuff but somehow it's hilarious it's so and sometimes very moving and i just think that's such fine beautiful writing when you can do that when you can yes. approach something as taboo as that and and so sensitive as that and deal with it in such a funny and truthful way so that's brilliant damned on channel Great. four and being uh, the number one podcast, obviously I've been listening to loads and loads of podcasts. Um, a roundup for you, Ashling B on Adam Buxton was brilliant and very moving. Uh, she talks a lot about her father's suicide. She wrote a piece for the Guardian yeah, about it. It's a great year. piece. Yeah. So she talks about that and about the kind of epidemic of male suicide, yeah. particularly in Ireland. And it was a wonderful episode. John Ronson which you alerted me to, did his second... You were so excited. You were like, no, I've already listened to it. It's old. And I was like, no, no, it came out this week. And I, your reply, <laughs> effusive, all in capitals. That was a great one. Yes, I really yeah. enjoyed that. The best bit about it is when John Ronson is talking about how his dad, before he died, put all of his money into the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. And Adam Buxton's like, what, what bank is that? And John Ronson's like, I know, all of us were like, Dad, where do we find this bank? He's like, they're everywhere in Wales. They're everywhere. You can't find them anyway. Can't find them. It transpires that the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation is HSBC. It's just that John so Ronson's dad like to use the full terminology. And at no point offered to step in and save everyone's confusion by just clarifying that it was this chain it was a wonderful episode it's a great episode so gentle and interesting i'm just obsessed with him now when i go to the gym i just search john ronson on podcasts just so i can listen to him but there's also a great bit where he's talking about shame because obviously he's done this brilliant book which we both love publicly shamed exactly but adam buxton offers a kind of counter question 
about um, shame and, and why it may be necessary in public life. And I don't agree with everything that he says, but in that way that Adam Buxton is so amazing at doing is that he just opens it out again to ask more questions. And uh, it's just a really fascinating chat. And I mm. really admire both of those men, actually, in the way that they always seem to be comfortable in going to the sort of recesses of debate that people feel too uncomfortable to go into because they're worried that if they do go into there, then they'll be deemed, you know, whatever. It's because it's their manner. It's the same with Louis Theroux, who happens to be a very, very old good friend of Adam Buxton, is they are very clever because they whether or not they feel like this, they pose these questions without judgment. Exactly. And um, it's psychological. It's the way you, you know, if you sound remotely sort of condemnatory or um, opinionated about something, then that person's heckles and really up. But you say, yeah, the way, as you've said, they just open up these questions mm. gently and calmly. It's kind of impossible for any of those men to offend, really. And I think they, they genuinely really really are interested in yeah, the world yeah, around curiosity. them. Yeah. I think it's a lesson to all of us, not just as journalists, but as humans, about how we all could afford to be more curious, I think, and, and how that will lead to less judgment. So I loved that. I also loved, Fern Cotton has a new uh, podcast called Happy Place, and her episode with Dawn French is particularly lovely. Uh, Dawn French talking about her divorce from Lenny Henry is a very moving bit, and she's very honest. So anyone going through a divorce, that might be a nice listen. Matt Smith and David Byrne on Desert Island Discs were both very good episodes. Have you ever disliked an episode of Desert Island Discs? Yeah, plenty. Who? There are a few. I don't think it's very cool of me to sit here slagging off people on Desert Island Discs. Oh, don't be such a good girl. You could give us one. Okay, I'll tell you what was a bit odd. Matt Smith, his accent's a bit loosey-goosey. So been all over the shop I'd <laughs> love to hear to... I'd love to hear your um, thoughts like Tom Hardy no you're sort of but Tom, more Tom, strange than that Tom Hardy in an interview walked out when someone suggested that he was actually quite posh yeah and the reason why they suggested that is because Tom Hardy had brought his dad along who's really posh yeah yeah it's I've, I found myself a bit a bit disconcerted I'd actually listened to Matt Smith's twice because I couldn't get my head around the voice dedication but, but I, no one else really picked up on this, so I'd like to hear if anyone else picked up now. on that. And finally, I would like to recommend Anne-Marie Duff's Desert Island Discs, who is a very brilliant actor. And I'm going to insert a clip here now. Again, this is about divorce. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with divorce at the moment. I was very sad when they divorced. The way she talks about breaking up with someone and ending a relationship and losing love... I was making breakfast in my kitchen when I heard it on the radio live and I was so moved I sat down on my kitchen floor with my cup of coffee and just sat in floods of tears while she talked about it she's actually quite open about it isn't she, she? Is. I read an interview with her probably three to six months let's give it that window in the telegraph I think it was and she she talked I mean you know she didn't go into like gruesome details but she I think kind of said like there's, I'm not ashamed of it. Like, there's, you know, I'm not going to not talk about it. Yeah. I oh, think I'd she, love to I think she that. feels things very deeply, and I think that's probably why she's such a fucking brilliant actor. The reason why I wanted to include the clip now is I thought if I'd heard her talking about this while I was in the midst of a breakup, I think I would have found it very comforting. I am a hopeless romantic. You know, I am. Sometimes I'll burn with pain as well as burn with desire. I will. Because that's the nature of opening your heart up to someone else. But I refuse to believe that there's a scarcity. I, I absolutely believe that there is love 
and more love. And I chose this because it's a really beautiful, simple love song that is about that tipping point at which you fear you may lose love. And this sounds ironic, of course, but sometimes in a marriage you are never closer than the moment at which the two of you decide it's time to finish. There is such pure intimacy in that moment and honesty and truth and kindness in all its many versions. So, yeah, I suppose I picked this song because it tells me, yeah, I can love and I can hurt, but I can love again. For the Hilo comes from Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From maps to emails, search and beyond, Google has a history of looking at the norm and finding a better way. Each week we're going to do a curiosity challenge where we pose a question to one another which encompasses the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the personal to the philosophical to the surreal. This week it's pretty personal, but how can it not be given the very cool thing Pandora's done in the last six weeks? Pandora, you've named your firstborn Zadie, love the name by the way, which also happens to be the name of one of our favourite writers. Who are some of your other favourite female writers? Incidentally, side note, Zadie is from Greek mythology. She was the mother of Zeus, don't you know? Before anyone thinks that I named her solely after another NW10-born Zadie, much as I do love Zadie Smith. Okay, other female authors I love alongside Zadie Smith, Meg Wallitzer, Curtis Sittenfeld, Hilary Thayer Haman, who wrote an incredible book called Anthropology of an American Girl, Lionel Shriver, and Jilly Cooper. I've got to have her in there. And not just because she named a book after me. She pretty much was my puberty. I wasn't expecting Jilly Cooper, but I think that's a nice mix. That would be a nice dinner party, actually. The Google Pixel 2 is the world's best smartphone, capturing your best ever photos, whether you're in bright light or dark evenings. So starry nights look as good as sunny days. Thank you very much to the Google Pixel 2. It's now time for the top line, and even with her baby brain, she's better at reading aloud than me. So I'm going to hand over to Pandora Sykes. Vogue has featured its first ever model with a hijab on its cover. 20-year-old Halima Aden has made history with the current issue featuring a diverse lineup of new models to know. Have I got news for you? Team captains Paul Merton and Ian Hislop have claimed that panel shows are too vicious for women to host and that women are too modest and reticent. 39-year-old Nassim Agdam has been named as the YouTube shooter. The YouTuber who was angry that YouTube were filtering her videos and therefore reducing the money she could make shot one man and two women who are currently injured with gunshot wounds before shooting herself dead at YouTube HQ in San Bruno, California. Queen Elizabeth II's 96-year-old husband, Prince Philip, has been admitted to a London hospital for hip surgery. The Hilo sends its best to Prince Philip. Vladimir Putin has demanded an inquiry into the Salisbury nerve agent attack, claiming that Novichok can be in fact made in 20 nations. He lamented the speed at which the anti-Russian campaign has been accelerated. 
Theresa May has pledged to tackle the burning injustice of the UK's gender pay gap. Dozens of UK businesses still need to submit their gender pay figures ahead of Wednesday's midnight deadline. Of the companies that have already made this information public, 78% pay men more than women, while just 13% pay women more than men. 8% stated they had no gendered pay gap at all. Jay-Z said he cried with relief when his mother told him that she is gay. I was so happy for her that she was free, the rapper told David Letterman on his new Netflix show. Jay-Z raps about the moment in the song Smile on his latest album. Imagine having lived your life for somebody else and you think you're protecting your kids, he said. Bad news for cola lovers. A new sugar tax will come into effect on Friday, meaning the price of some soft drinks is about to increase. A can of Coke, which contains a whopping seven teaspoons of sugar, will increase by 8p per can. Ant and Deck have been nominated for a BAFTA for their hugely successful show, Saturday Night Takeaway. It comes after Deck presented Saturday's show by himself after Ant was charged with drink driving. Everyone's got a memory of a boring, terrible childhood trip to a National Trust house, but this one may top them all. A seven-year-old boy spent almost three hours stuck inside a stone monument at a National Trust property. Max Morgan had to be cut free after his leg got trapped in the grounds of Whitewick Manor near Wolverhampton. The boy was released by West Midlands Fire Service and his father praised the emergency service for their quick thinking. And that was the top line. I'm not sure about your National Trust entry. <laughs> it's a very important piece of news, I thought. I mean, this is the high-low. And also, we are bedding back in, so... <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was worthy of the top line, by the way. But did you see that Adele got ordained in order to marry Alan Carr? Loved that. Not to marry him, mind. God, I bet that service was fun. Yeah, love that. I, I've offered my services for uh, ordination in the past to friends, but no one's ever taken me up on it. I can't think why. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a news story that has very understandably totally gripped Ireland in recent weeks. The coverage here has been much, much more sparse. And I say this as a disclaimer, as I understand that most of our Irish listeners will be more than aware of the timeline and details of this story. But I think it's important to recap it in full for listeners outside of Ireland, because I do think we've received far, far less information. And thank you as well very much to our Irish listeners who pointed us in the direction of this story in the first place. There's a detailed Irish Times piece that we will link to in the show notes, which explains the case and what happened in court for those who are unfamiliar with it. But here is a brief summary of the case. In 2016, a 19-year-old woman accused two Irish rugby players of rape. The woman alleges that at a party in South Belfast at Ulster rugby player Paddy Jackson's house, after kissing Paddy Jackson consensually, she was raped by both Jackson and another player, Stuart Olding. Their friend Blaine McElroy then entered the room, allegedly masturbating and saying, you fucked the other guys, why won't you fuck me? The woman says she fled the scene in blood-stained clothes before a second friend of the players, Rory Harrison, dropped her home in a taxi and sent her a text message the next day telling her to keep her chin up. 
The next morning, crucially, she sent a message back to him saying what happened last night was not consensual. She also texted her friend saying she had been raped by three Ulster fucking rugby scum and was examined by a doctor who confirmed that she had internal damage. She had a tear in her vagina that caused her to bleed. Last week, Alding and Jackson, along with their two friends Harrison and McElroy, who were accused of withholding information in Harrison's case and exposing himself in McElroy's case, were cleared of all accusations as the 42-day trial came to an end. It's a very, very harrowing account and you feel physically filled with fear as you read about it. But what has been equally as frightening is the way the trial was handled. When you read about everything that went on in that court, a number of things happened that just makes it seem like it's a person's worst nightmare. For example, despite the victim speaking from behind a curtain, her identity was shared online. The prosecutor cross-examined her for three days, accused her of seducing Paddy Jackson, of just wanting to sleep with a celebrity that sort of anyone would do. He accused her of renaming group sex rape for fear of embarrassment. And he even suggested that she had been bleeding before the attack. The list goes on, but from what I can gather, it felt like a room in which she was on trial rather than those accused. Victoria Smith for The Independent wrote, The response is disappointing, but not necessarily surprising. After all, who has really been on trial here? Whose guilt, morally if not legally, have we really been trying to prove? Watching the trial progress, it seemed to me that the question was never, are these men rapists, but always, is this woman a liar? Such a framing of the situation, both inside the courtroom and beyond, matters a great deal, if not for the verdict itself, then for the future well-being of the accuser and any woman who wishes to make a similar complaint. If our focus is not on men's propensity to commit acts of sexual violence, but on women's propensity to lie, we perpetuate a culture in which women's testimonies are seen as unreliable before a word has been said. Pumped a bird with Jacko last night, roasted her, Stuart Olding is revealed to have texted to a friend. It's a really interesting time to be talking about this case because we've had a 2018 whereby on the surface thus far, women have been listened to. I think this case shows though that this is still very much a surface thing. This case is very different to a lot of the stories that women have been sharing from Me Too, so it's not a direct you know, comparison. And this is also a legal case with supposedly due process and a jury. In a recent interview with the Sunday Times, Ronan Farrow, the journalist behind the New Yorker piece on Harvey Weinstein, and famously the son of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, clarified that he subscribed to a mantra not of believe all women, but listen to all women. This was a really important distinction to make. Margaret Atwood was criticised heavily a few months ago for saying a similar thing, which was, let us not dismiss the court of law, let us not try people by public opinion, but in a legal court. So what's particularly distressing and disturbing about this is that, that this case was tried in a court of law with evidence, evidence that she had internal damage in her vagina, and the conclusion was merely that this woman was a star fucker. Another deeply disturbing thing to me is the fact that the jury was made up of eight men and three women. I don't understand, particularly when you're not talking about any kind of professional meritocracy, you're talking about appropriate citizens being selected sort of at random, how this can happen in a rape trial. I know that there are people who will respond to me by saying that you don't have to be a woman to understand rape or to show compassion and empathy. I get that and I accept that. But something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is how often I'm hearing heterosexual men talking about sexual abuse 
and the way they try to equate the feeling to themselves and to help deepen their understanding of the female experience is by saying, I can't imagine how scared I would be if a man tried to rape me. I don't personally have a problem with men using this as a theoretical scenario in which they can understand the terror of rape. I know some people will find it reductive or say that they shouldn't have to imagine it in those terms to understand it, but I get it. We're built very different physically, but there lies the current issue when it comes to understanding the reality of what rape is. It's much more of a historic, widespread, visceral, palpable threat to women than it is to men. It is our biggest fear, one of our biggest fears. It's not irrational. It's a key part of the female experience, that very specific fear. What I think is really interesting is you mentioned that juries are chosen at random. They're not. They're actually really carefully chosen for each case. Also, the the idea that they should be equal parts men and women doesn't seem to be something that holds any sway at all. And I can see that in a lot of cases, it's not terribly important. It isn't necessarily a travesty to have eight men and three women on I don't know, a case of straightforward theft. But in this particular case, it feels, as you say, really wrong. And I can't help but wonder if the jury had been made of up of eight women and three men, if we would be in the same situation. Women are fully capable of calling other women sluts and of lambasting them for their sexual choices. But would the verdict have been the same? I just feel in my bones not. Well, a lot of women at some point in their lives... I include myself in this, if it hasn't happened to them, they've had a moment where they feel like it's about to happen to them or they look back and feel like they've narrowly missed it happening to them. And when they think about those moments, they remember how they suddenly couldn't move or their throat dried up or how their heart felt like it had flatlined. It is important then for women to make up at least half of the jury when it comes to listening to these accounts and understanding the kind of forensic, physical details of the story. I I would say it's one of the most important things in the trial. In the UK, women became eligible to serve on juries in 1919 with the dissolution of the Sex Disqualification Removal Act. So we've actually been able to serve as jurors for less than 100 years. The effect of which, and this is really interesting, was an increase in convictions for rape by 16%. Now, this research was done, I mean, decades ago, 1918 to 1926, across 3,000 different cases. So I'm not suggesting that the male thinking when it comes to female sexuality or rape or gender relations is what it is almost 100 years ago. But 16% is not to be sniffed at. Mm. And I think it offers some food for thought. Mm. And I'd really like to see um, some cases that are as close to one another as possible, where there has been um, sex crimes and you've got eight men and three women and then maybe eight women and three men, you know, as similar cases as possible, loads of those. And let's see, let's see what the conviction rate is. Be interesting. Another shocking detail of the story is how the lawyers of the accused have reacted in the aftermath of the trial. They've said that the rugby careers of both men have been seriously blighted by the trial. It was also said that their status and fame was taken too much into account when it came to the trial, which yet again, I just think shows a total lack of understanding of how these cases work. Of course, rape doesn't happen in cases of celebrities and they should not be taken more seriously than in, than in other similar cases. But look at everything that's happened and that's been in the news from 2012 and Operation Nutrient onwards. So many of these rape trials are about power, silence, humiliation and fear a dynamic in which someone has a lot of support around them a lot of money a lot of people and a lot of power to silence the victim 
I mean, just look at how many payouts Miramax underwrote for Weinstein. Millions and millions. In fact, Ronan Farrow's New Yorker piece of November last year also revealed that in the US, and this is really shocking, but then politics is as much about sex as Hollywood is, the House of Representatives have paid more than $17 million to settle 260 claims of harassment over the past 20 years, a figure that includes sexual offences as well as harassment based on race, age or other factors within in the House of Representatives. It's an ecosystem that basically just allows it to carry on happening for victims to carry on being afraid to come forward as they could potentially be humiliated in cross-examination for three days, have their character manipulated as fame or attention-hungry, and then basically have their life turned upside down and left for nothing. So to say that their statuses are irrelevant is just phenomenally pig-headed. Ulster Rugby are yet to confirm if Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding will play again. All questions of this ilk were banned at this week's press conference ahead of the match against Edinburgh this weekend. Side note, by the way, I love the term pig-headed. I know, bringing it back. That's the only word that came to me, though. Pig-headed? Pig-headed. Since the verdict, there have been protest marches in both Belfast and Dublin. The BBC reported last week that the hashtag #IBelieveHer was trending, as 41,000 people used it to condemn the poor rights of women in Northern Ireland. Abortion is also banned in Northern Ireland. There is depressingly some pretty awful commentary on Twitter, as usual, about feminists needing to get over the fact that this woman lied about rape, etc. But there's a lot of uplifting stuff mm. in there too, which is always the way. Mm. The Dublin Rape Crisis Centre has called for a review of how rape cases are treated in Northern Ireland, whilst journalist Sarah McKinney wrote in a tweet that has since been tweeted over 1,700 times, the I believe her hashtag gives an insight into how deeply upsetting this court case was for so many women. If nothing else, it must surely lead to a change in how rape trials are conducted. Is there any other crime in which the alleged victims appear to be the ones on trial? Support for the Hilo comes from Treatwell. You can browse your local salons online, find the best deals and book your treatment on the website or via the app. It couldn't be easier. Treatwell is the brighter way to book beauty. It's simpler, easier, smarter. And you can choose your salon by browsing within your budget and looking at user reviews. I do always trust a user review. I'd prefer to say I don't now that my first book is out and I've examined the uh, sort of stuff that people are capable of writing on Amazon. But on the whole, I trust a user review. In fact, I bought my Dyson Hoover based solely on user reviews. I feel like you'd wanted that Hoover for a while. I did. So you did your research. You can book hair, nails, massages, hair removal, facials, spa days and breaks quickly, 24-7, and on the go. It's also great for discretion when you don't fancy booking your bikini wax on the phone while you're in a quiet train carriage. You can also save up to 50% off if you book off-peak appointment times or you book last minute. Treatwell was a bit of a lifesaver for you during mat leave, wasn't it? The week after I had my daughter, my shellac manicure was literally just a trimming at the end of my nails, but I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't take her to a nail salon with the fumes and I was obviously more of a boob banquet than ever so Treatwell yeah Treatwell came and uh, saved the day and sorted out my feral finger and toenails thank you very much Treatwell for keeping Pandora's feral finger and toenails well groomed and thank you for supporting the Hilo
The trajectory of the reality TV celebrity is rote. Humble, small-time gal or hammy, genial guy, revered for their unaffected ability to chat and drink tea, leaves show for bigger things, which translates as more reality TV shows where the reality TV star is now a star baked into the format. Once the small-time gal or genial guy, but now in fact driving a gifted Beamer, living in a crisp mansion and promoting Diet Tea and Boohoo.com collaborations. But how do you feed the beast? Reality TV star is loath to abandon the format that made them rich and famous, and having been discovered age 19, doesn't have anything else to fall back on. But it is a fame predicated on their realness, and what is more quote-unquote real than their physical home. Suddenly, said female, no, female reality TV star is a site for debate. Debate about her weight. She binges, she starves, and then, but of course, she makes the inevitable weight loss DVD. Last week, Gogglebox Golden Girl Scarlett Moffat was slammed, to use the parlance of tabloids, after it was revealed that she had not lost the weight for her weight loss DVD in the manner of which she claims, but rather at a boot camp in Switzerland where she existed on 700 calories a day. Having failed to keep the weight off for the contracted year, Scarlett went from a size 16 to an 8. She now faces being fined hundreds of thousands of pounds. Eva Wiseman wrote a particularly brilliant piece about this for The Guardian, in which she called the Celebrity Weight Loss DVD this century's biggest prank. She posed what is really important about this sad tale. Firstly, that we revere and endorse reality TV stars for their realness, which quickly removes their ability to be real. And secondly, how the narrative of the female weight loss celebrity is actually an arc as old as time, a woman being valued for the sum of her parts. There's a particularly poignant bit where Eva writes that she met Towie's Lauren Goodger in 2012 after counting 546 Mail Online headlines about her weight. Naturally, Lauren Goodger was repped by the sharky agent Max Clifford and Lauren tells Eva how odd it felt when scrutiny about your weight becomes your entire career. Not just part of your career, but your entire career. How do you maintain that? I rather brattily just tweeted, I wish I could write like Eva Wiseman with a link to the article. <laughs> I love the way she talks about this narrative of kind of of both proverbial and literal highs and lows that are inbuilt now into the the trajectory of the reality star the minute that they cash in on their short-lived and flimsy fame i think the thing i found most disturbing about it like you was the fact that these women are incentivized with cash reward or threatened with the loss of that cash dependent on whether they keep the weight off it's literally like MGM in the 1940s Hollywood it's astonishing and you have to ask as well what sort of effect that has on a person's uh, self-worth and their, and their mental health and anxiety levels when their income is dependent on not just looking a certain way but remaining an exact weight not even to be viable to perform or to compete in athletics or anything but just to, as you said just to go to nightclubs and wear body con dresses and, and maybe sometimes be on the this morning sofa. And the financial incentives you talk of are really important. Geordie Shaw's Vicky Pattinson was rumoured to be paid £160,000 for her weight loss DVD. I think the problem is that we're no longer talking realness, but hyper-reality. We live in a hyper-real age where, more often than not, it's this ostentatious documentation of what is real, quote-unquote, that is utterly fake. All those cups of tea on the sofa become a cup of tea 
you know, procured by a producer on a sofa that's not in their own home. And suddenly you've somehow taken them out of the very thing that made them so charming and real. For example, and this can actually be seen in Towie's James Argent as well, the reality star is seen, you know, jovially eating donuts on their reality show. They leave the comfortable cradle of their first show, enter a sort of slightly nastier second show, where they're suddenly made unsure of their own softness. And the seed is planted for the narrative to bloom. Cue the weight loss DVD and a column in a, you know, trashy magazine, which is inevitably centred around their battles with their weight. And then once they reach that taut and shiny, tiny size six, the narrative begins its descent or swoop, whichever way you see it, with subsequent tabloid pics, as Eva writes, of the star coming out of Costa with a giant latte. And most of this has been stage directed. Sometimes they're even told, put on weight now and you'll get money for how you, you know, fail to keep off the weight. And it's becoming a tale as old as time now as well. It feels like this has really been going on for a number of years, which is why it felt so recognisable and true in Eva's column. Yeah, as I said, the trajectory is rote. They literally only have two choices. They can either keep their weight off and talk about egg white omelettes and their favourite gym class for the rest of their life, so they become the Fitspo reality yeah. TV celeb, or they can put the weight back on and have that as their raison d'etre, a la Gemma Collins, the yo-yo celeb. Arguably, it's because the reality TV star isn't really predicated on any real talent. In fact, it's the absence of talent which often makes these reality TV stars so relatable. But how does that engine keep chugging without any valuable skills or assets? Well, da-da, it's their body, yeah. which is which is always a win yeah. because it's just right there. It's there, exactly. <laughs> On a recent episode of TOWIE, Arj asked his friends how he could woo his girlfriend, Gemma Collins, and they suggested with mini burgers. I knew you'd make it about food, he guffaws. But of course they would. Of course they'd make it about food. They'd been told to ask a question about food. What else could they make it about? Gemma is nothing more than a walking, talking, yo-yo diet celeb cliche in blonde hair extensions. What's so sad about this is that really isn't another end to these stories. It's a cruel farce. It's predetermined. It's almost Shakespearean. And it always astounds me that in our supposedly progressive society, we don't find this whole idea of the celebrity TV star, particularly the weight loss one, more retro and more damaging. As a side note, I have pitched so many times a piece about the rise and rise of Gemma Collins <laughs> and how she became the zeitgeist icon of her generation, but no one ever bites. I don't watch TOWIE anymore. I used to watch it a bit when I worked in reality TV, but I am phenomenally drawn to Gemma Collins and I don't really know why. I just love her. You love that meme of her, don't you? What did she say that went viral? She, she was turned into a meme and this is how people... Gemma Collins... It became cool to love Gemma Collins. Yeah, there's a whole Twitter account. Yeah, you're part of this whole fucking hipster subculture who have never actually watched Howie. You just you just claim Gemma Collins as your heroine. And then Gemma Collins said thank you for the meme page. She went, I just want to thank everyone for my memes. <laughs> the memes, that was it. <laughs> I think you can love Gemma Collins, incidentally, and still feel disturbed by the role of the weight loss celeb. I'm not even sure Gemma Collins counts as a weight loss celeb because she seems less interested in the yo-yo diet herself. It's more just that other people keep trying to stick that label on her, like she's some sort of resident porker. Yes, I agree. I'm on the cusp of actually finding it too sad to watch Towie now anyway. All the girls, and I mean all of them, have had surgery. Boobs, lips, filler. 
And I do think it's quite problematic when you're talking about women who have had surgery, especially as another woman, because I don't want to shame them. That's not what this is about. But I do wonder what sort of clusterfuck we are living through when every single 25-year-old girl on this show that I see on TV in a one-hour period has had surgery. Mm. All the men call the girls sluts as soon as the girls disagree with them. None of the girls are allowed to talk about anything other than men or nails. And I, I just wonder why the producers feel so intent on perpetuating this version of womanhood. It's not homely or comforting it's patronizing and esoteric as much as the focus is on their weight it's interesting i've had a lot of good mates work on towie and one of the most telling observations i've heard about the show and about that world more generally is that it is like stepping back in time and it almost mirrors um a kind of traditional italian family it's about you respect your elders you live close to your elders the men work in the city. They often don't want their wives to work. They want them at home raising children. And it's all about getting these very obvious status symbols that are all kind of identical. Boob jobs and cars and houses. Mm. And when I went out, do you remember I went out for that Towie night out in Essex? Yes. Um, and I wrote about with Lydia, it right. with Lydia and all her mates. And I wrote about it for Style. Something I found so fascinating was that one of the girls told me that the boys take drugs but none of the girls are allowed to take drugs so if a woman is known to take drugs socially or at a party she's a slight pariah and no one will date her but i just don't think that's interesting it's it's so bizarrely old-fashioned i think it's interesting and i think it's unbelievably depressing Yes, it's old-fashioned when boys call their girlfriends sluts when they dare stick up for themselves. On an episode last week, I turned to my husband and said, I cannot believe the producers are showing this and feel okay with releasing this to the public. There were two instances which I found genuinely depressing, and I'm not being a real, like, sort of stick-in-the-mud or po-face, but one man yelled at his girlfriend, like the Italian mafia, if you like, I am a gentleman, you are just a spoilt brat. I mean, he didn't get the irony. They were having this argument because she didn't want him to shout at her and her friends anymore. Another girl was called a slut by her boyfriend because she didn't walk away when a man flirted with her, but continued to chat politely with him. Yes, that's old fashioned, but it doesn't make it good. Mm. I'm also very aware that we have an Essex boy sitting at the table who is... Probably the most chivalrous man I've ever met. So You've got not... an Essex boy and an Essex girl. And an Essex girl. So Charlie, just to let you know as I say this, not all Essex boys. Your roots of being a traditional Essex girl aren't calling you back, are they, Pandora? Are you going to give up work, do a collaboration with Boohoo, bring out an exercise video post-baby? I like the way you call me a traditional Essex girl rather than just an Essex girl. Uh, no, I'm going to do a, a Billy and Sam Fairs and start a show about Baby Zadie. That's a play, instantly on the fact that Sam's boyfriend, Paul, and her named their son Baby Paul. <laughs> it's time for Ask the Hilo. As ever, you can send us your dilemmas, your questions, your thoughts, be it serious or flippant or silly. Email us on show at gmail.com. Hit me with this week's Ask the Hilo. Back in December, I slept with a colleague after our office Christmas party. We'd only had a few conversations prior to this and he seemed like a nice guy. At the party, we flirted and then we went back to mine. We were both drunk and I actually hardly remember it. I then found out that he has a girlfriend. Aside from being horrified and feeling guilty and dirty, I don't know whether to tell her or just to leave it. Part of me wants to forget the whole thing and firmly believes that their relationship is none of my business. The other part is convinced that if it was the other way around, I would want to know. 
I have no interest in speaking to him again. I genuinely have no feelings towards him. I'm leaving work soon anyway, so I won't have to see him anymore. It feels like the easy option would be to leave it, but I also feel a responsibility to let her know. I would really appreciate your advice. Ooh, I'm interested, Dolly. What do you think? I wouldn't tell her. I wouldn't. I don't think it's any of her business. I wouldn't tell her, and I don't think you should tell her. Not only because I don't think it's any of your business, but you are meddling. You will quite potentially ruin their relationship. So aside from anything else, it's not great karma. And also, I'm not advocating cheaters, but for all you know, this was a horrible mistake on his part. And you would inevitably wreck their relationship. And I really believe in being honest, but the onus on being honest is his, not yours. Honesty yeah. doesn't mean you come into a woman you've never met. I must say as well, I really, I don't think, I don't think you're being like a meddler. I really, I would be conflicted in the same way, and I really respect your mission to be honest and the notion of of your question. I completely understand, but you don't know this woman. You aren't friends with her. You don't know anything about their relationship. As Pandora said, it might be one transgression. It might be that she already knows about it. It's not our place to judge that, I don't think. I think it's different if you know that this is someone who's a serial cheater. Even if he was, I don't know if you're the woman to be tackling this. Yeah, and the other thing is you have to look look out for yourself as well because there is a world in which you go and tell this woman that and this woman doesn't know you from Adam. Maybe she's been with this man and maybe they share their life and home and world together. You don't know whether she'd believe you. And then you'd be you'd be kind of intrinsically involved in this awful mess that probably you don't really want to be thinking about. It's not your anxiety to be worried about. I think you also have to look at your own motivation. I'm not suggesting that on any conscious level you would be doing this, but I wonder if you are driven in part to tell her by a desire to absolve yourself of the guilt you feel for being kind you know, not just an accessory to his cheating, the subject of his cheating. Mm. And if you'll somehow feel better and like you've done the sort of the good thing I think relationships are incredibly complicated I don't think there is a right or wrong way to behave but I don't think that this is your place or your responsibility to tell her and I think as as Dolly says you would not only be opening up one hell of a situation but you'd be placing yourself right in the middle middle. and also you know being told that your partner has cheated on you potentially is the worst moment of someone's life and I just don't know if hearing it from a stranger is the appropriate way for that information to get to you. Leave it and move on is my advice. And don't feel guilty these things happen. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. It's good to be back! (laughs) So tired and I have to go lie down. And And of course pumps and bloody milk out of my boobs um you can tweet us at the hilo show or email us the hilo show at gmail.com bye from me and bye from the human cow (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.